This Cosmos Live series, Preparing for Profound Change, is made possible by Immediacy, leading creators of educational media for learners of all ages, everywhere, and by Cosmos Community, dedicated supporters of the Cosmos mission, transformation in harmony with all life. Visit cosmosjournal.org to learn more. This is Cosmos Live, and I'm your host, Rhonda Fabian. As someone who's been very active in the, in, as a mediator and in negotiations and conflicts around the world, one thing I've noticed is that, as I mentioned earlier, we are our own worst enemies. And uh, as the old saying goes, when angry, you will make the best speech you will ever regret. And, you know, we're reaction machines. And so, to me, the foundation of successful negotiation, actually, starts with ourselves. You're listening to William Urey, co-founder of Harvard's Program on Negotiation and one of the world's leading experts on negotiation and mediation. He is co-author of Getting to Yes, the world's best-selling book on negotiation, and more recently, the author of Getting to Yes with Yourself, William has served as a negotiation advisor and mediator in conflicts ranging from Kentucky wildcat coal mine strikes to ethnic wars in the Middle East, the Balkans, and the former Soviet Union. Welcome to Cosmos Live, William. It's a pleasure, Rhonda. So, William, did your fascination with the world and its conflicts begin at a young age? I would say so. I, uh, at a young age, around five, I moved from Chicago to Switzerland and, uh, and spent actually a good part of my childhood in Switzerland uh, in schools where there were children from just about you know, 40 or 50 nations, every continent, uh, every faith you could think of, and uh, many different cultures. And uh, so I, I think early on, I formed a kind of question of how, how we as humanity could uh, get along with each other. And in addition, uh, somehow as a boy, growing up in the shadow of the, of the atomic bomb, I could never quite understand why it is we were prepared to put at risk the fate of humanity on, on any conflict, be it between the United States and the Soviet Union of the time or any conflict. Uh, so, so, I was, so I sort of sat with that question of how we as human beings can deal with our deepest differences in a constructive way rather than killing each other. Mm. And we seem to be in some ways on the uh, edge of a similar time uh, today. We are. We are very much so. In fact, uh, having worked um, uh, on the Cold War uh, for about 10 years in the 80s, and then, you know, the, you know, the Berlin Wall falls and the Soviet Union transforms and and we get used to a different reality. And yet now, I must say, objectively speaking, um, there are good reasons to believe that we're at as equal or greater risk than we were during the Cold War, which is hard to believe. We have to kind of wake up from our sleep about that. It is hard to believe. I mean, I, I wonder why we as a species are so insistent on, on sabotaging our own destiny. Uh, well, what I've found in my long, well, over 40 years of roaming the planet uh, as an anthropologist and mediator to really trying to understand how we deal with our 
with conflicts that are seemingly intractable. I must say, I've asked myself that question many times of uh, where are we on our journey and why we are in many ways our own, uh, our own worst enemy. Our, uh, you know, we've met the enemy and, and they are us. Mm. It, it seems like such a rewarding calling, what you do, and yet it must be very hard at times when people can't resolve or won't resolve their differences. How can we learn to deal with our differences in more constructive ways? Well, I think we can. Um, you know, when I began in this field back in the 70s, you know, the great conflicts of the time that we were working on were, and people thought were absolutely intractable, were, you know, the Cold War, people thought the Berlin Wall, all the professors and everyone thought the Berlin Wall was going to be there and the Cold War was going to go on for generations. And uh, there was Northern Ireland, uh, the Catholics and Protestants, it was a religious matter, it was in people's blood, they were going to fight each other till kingdom come. Uh, South Africa, you know, the apartheid was going to go on, it was always going to be a a war, and yet um, I watched and participated and visited all those places and worked in all those places and watched as conflicts that we thought were seemingly impossible gradually gave way to not the end of not the end of the conflict, but the transformation of the conflict. That's what's key. Is sometimes we think, oh, it's end of the conflict. Well, conflict is part of life, but to change the form of the conflict from a destructive form of war, violence, oppression, to a constructive form of dialogue, negotiation, democracy, nonviolent action. That's the key. It seems like conflict today is so much more nuanced, multi-layered, and um, grounded in collective trauma, both personal and collective. I'm wondering, um, can people really let go of their woundedness it seems impossible, and there's no question that it makes it extremely difficult, particularly when you have deep traumas that tend to have a pattern of repeating themselves, um, particularly if they remain unconscious or not really looked at. Uh, at the same time, all I can say is that, as an old friend of mine once said, what exists is possible. Uh, I've seen with my own eyes how deep conflicts with deep trauma you know, like the ones I just mentioned, Northern Ireland, South Africa. But even more recently, I've been working in the country of Colombia, where uh, for the last seven years as a senior advisor to the president. Uh, in, and seven years ago, when, when I first met with him, you know, the idea that you could bring an end to that war, which had gone on for 50 years, and there were over... 200,000 deaths, 8 million victims, countless kidnappings, torture, you name it. Uh, the trauma was immense in that society. And there was hardly anyone alive who remembered what it was like to live in peace, actually. The, the majority of Colombians were for peace, but then if you looked at the same polls, the great majority of them thought it was absolutely impossible because it never had existed before in their memory. And yet I watched, I've watched and I've participated in 25 trips to Colombia over the last uh, seven years. And uh, now that 50-year war has come to an end and it's messy. Uh, the conflict is not over, but the war is over. The guerrillas have even uh, laid down their weapons, disbanded. The UN's been in there. It's the, there's a whole process going on. And, and when I think that that's 
not just a war in Colombia, that is the last war in Latin America, of which there were many such wars back in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and even. And now that's the last one in the entire Western Hemisphere. So it raises the possible question of if it's possible for war to come to an end in one hemisphere, is it possible for it to come to an end in both hemispheres? And so there, there's, in the midst of all the gloom and the despair today and all that, I don't mean to take away from that sense of, of, uh, of how we're living on the brink, but I believe there's hope. Well, that's a really encouraging example. Uh, you've experienced moments of deep transformation, I'm sure, in negotiations. What's it like when a, a breakthrough occurs in the room? Well, I'll just give you, I mean, there are many examples, but I'll just give you one that comes to mind right now, which is from some years ago. I was uh, facilitating a, uh, a kind of an off-the-record confidential dialogue uh, between uh, Turkish leaders and Kurdish leaders. And as you know, the Turks and the Kurds uh, have been fighting a terrible war uh, for, for, for decades and they couldn't even meet in Turkey, and it was even dangerous for them to be even known that they were meeting together and even talking with each other. And so we were meeting at a at an old uh, uh, chateau outside of Paris somewhere. And at one point, uh, one of the uh, one of the Turkish participants was a had been a, a general uh, in the army and a very senior leader of the armed forces. And I remember at one point in our dialogue, he asked for the floor. And, you know, we were a group of maybe, I don't know, 15 people sitting around the table. And uh, he said, uh, you know, um, I, I just know that I, I'm aware that during this war, uh, you know, the Turkish army has participated and there have been, you know, thousands of villages that have been raised to the ground and all the suffering and killing. And, uh, and as a member of and a leader of the Turkish armed forces, I just personally want to say, I'm sorry. Wow. And you could have heard a pin drop in the room at that moment. It was so unexpected. It was like everyone was like holding their breath for a moment. And it was a, it was one of those moments where then something, something changed in the atmosphere, something changed in the, in the energy. And, and out of that meeting, uh, came, uh, some very practical ways in which these uh, two groups of leaders decided to work together to try to to foster dialogue and uh, back in in Turkey and to to begin to to heal the wounds and it just takes uh, just that courage of that a very simple human apology that starts to make a difference and you could uh, there was something so beautiful about it it was like. Uh, it was really just uh, one of those moments when uh, uh, it's just like a moment of grace, I would say. That's beautiful. I think that the power of, of the apology, you know, cannot be um, overestimated. I mean, it's really important um, to simply be able to acknowledge that we also cause um, harm. You know, we cause trauma. Um, we've caused, for instance, tremendous harm to the to the earth itself. How does self-forgiveness and compassion uh, come into play in your work, William? Very much so. Uh, there's so much. We're all, you know, we're all we're all victims. We're all perpetrators in this in this kind of merry-go-round. And uh, and self-forgiveness, the ability to forgive yourself, um, 
it's very hard actually to forgive others or if you can't forgive yourself first. Um, and I've watched that interplay actually of, uh, and forgiveness because in the end, you know, you can't really, you can't change the past, but what can change is how we hold the past, how we view the past, how we feel the past. And that's where the role of forgiveness and compassion really deep, deep, deep listening is so key. You know, you're reminding me, I don't know why, of uh, an old Tibetan prophecy from maybe a thousand years ago that uh, it's called the Shambhala prophecy. And uh, it's uh, that at some point in the distant future, there will come a moment when the earth itself is in danger, like you're mentioning. And at that moment in that generation, there will, you know, come into being a new breed of uh, of warriors, or I would call them healing warriors. They call them Shambhala warriors in, in the Tibetan prophecy. And they're endowed with two, two weapons. And the first one is insight, the ability to really look inside. And that's where self-forgiveness comes from. And the second is compassion. So it's those two valuable tools that are so key right now if we're going to begin to heal ourselves, heal our communities, and heal our planet. You're listening to Cosmos Live, a production of Cosmos Journal, dedicated to transformation of self, communities, institutions, and planet in harmony with all life. You can subscribe at www.cosmosjournal.org. That's cosmos with a K, journal.org. I'm speaking with William Urey, Distinguished Senior Fellow at the Harvard Negotiation Project. Thomas Hubel, the uh, spiritual teacher and systems thinker who I know is a good friend of yours, speaks about spaciousness, uh, creating room within our own minds for insight to emerge. And I think that that's similar to a metaphor that, that you use of um, going to the balcony. Can you share what you mean by that? Yeah, it's uh, as a someone who's you know been very active in the in as a mediator and in negotiations and conflicts around the world one thing i've noticed is that uh as i mentioned earlier we are our own worst enemies and uh as the old saying goes when when angry you will make the best speech you will ever regret uh and you know we're reaction machines and so to me, the foundation of successful negotiation actually um, starts with ourselves, and it starts with our ability to, like, uh, to go to the balcony. And by that, I mean as a metaphor, it's like imagine that you're negotiating, you're discussing, you're talking, you're listening on a stage with other players or other actors, and part of you goes to a, a, a mental and emotional balcony overlooking that stage, which is just a metaphor for a place of perspective, a place of spaciousness, a place of calm, a place where you can keep your eyes on the prize. What is truly important at that moment? What, 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 what are we truly trying to achieve here? And, uh, and for me, that metaphor of going to the balcony is something, you know, in today's world where, you know, cell phones are going off and emails and texts and tweets and all the sheer busyness, 
our ability to find ways to go to the balcony, even for a moment, just to take a moment of silence or to breathe or to meditate or to go for a walk in nature or in the park in the city, uh, just to look at something green. Uh, that ability to take a break, even short breaks, to me is key if we're going to remember what it's all about and to remember to focus, to be able to focus in a good way on what we're trying to achieve in our daily lives. I think that that is such uh, important advice and uh, so helpful to our listeners. Do you think that anyone can be a mediator, William? Not only do I think that anyone can be a mediator, but I think if anyone would actually look at their own experience, everyone would realize they are already a mediator. Mm. <laughs> uh, we are all mediators, whether we know it or not, whether we go by that title or not. It's in the sense that, you know, if you're a parent, for example, you're mediating between your kids. You may not think of it. Or you're mediating among your parents. <laughs> you're mediating uh, among your friends. Or you're mediating among uh, your colleagues. In other words, right. what does mediate mean? It means to be in the middle. And, you know, you'll have relationships between people and you watch them get into little collisions. And you, there are many, many roles of the mediator. But, you know, the, to me, one of the principal ones is to be a listener, is to really to listen to one side to listen to the other, simply to listen, that would be enough so that they feel heard because oftentimes most of us don't feel heard. Um, but it also could mean then to help, uh, help each one understand what the other one is really saying. And, uh, it's key. So we're, we're, we're all mediators. That's, that's the honest truth. It's not, it's not that anyone can be a mediator. We are all mediators. We just don't know it. <laughs> Many of our listeners and readers of Cosmos are leaders within their organizations or in their communities. I'm wondering if you've ever thought of mediation as a sort of civic duty. I do. How you see the world depends on where you sit. And, uh, and so the ability to, as leaders, for example, to mediate, there are always, there, you know, there are tensions within your group, within your organization, between your organization and others. And the ability to manage those tensions, to lead, to, to direct them in a positive direction, to help transform them from kind of, you know, just rigid, oppositional, stalemating, or even, uh, you know, you know uh, lawsuits and all that into, you know, let's really listen and talk and see if we can put ourselves in the other person's shoes and understand where they're coming from and see if out of what seems to be a tension, you can create maybe a larger integrative solution. You know, we have this big struggle all the time between the right and the left. Well, uh, would you like just to have a right hand or would you like to just have a left hand? <laughs> no, you want to have both because both together could do much more than either alone. And that's what we need in this world is we need the polarities because each one has a key contribution to make if we can only recognize it. So this idea of um, polarities, I want to actually get into that a little bit. Many people believe that this is a, a profound period of change for humanity. And some of the other guests in this series have said it's a time of bifurcation, um, a rise of, you know, good and evil, good and, or let's say, light and darkness simultaneously. Um, so it, it's spoken about in terms of these dualities. And I think whenever there's a duality, there's a divide that needs to be bridged 
there. Um, so given you know what we were just saying about mediation as a civic duty, is it also in some ways a spiritual practice in, in this very challenging time we find ourselves in? Very, very much so. You know, it's, uh, I don't think it's any coincidence that the word mediate and the word meditate only have a T. <laughs> uh, There's the, such a, you know, they, they both come from Latin, which means to be in the middle, to, to, to contemplate, to hold the middle. And as you mentioned, to take times of deep polarity, and this is a time of deep polarization around the world. We see it. I, I travel the world. Uh, I see it everywhere. I, uh, you know, here in the United States, of course, in, in Europe, in the Middle East, uh, in, the, in the Far East, uh, wherever you look, there's more and more polarization. And we're being, and that's where our civic duty of being mediators, uh, to me, is key. And to me, that ability to mediate really draws in a very deep way. It's a, it's a, it's a spiritual calling, but it also draws on our human spirit and our ability to meditate our ability, which what is meditation, but it's ability to mediate among ourselves, inside of ourselves really, and to really kind of quiet the mind and listen to all that dialogue. It just kind of like drop down into a deeper, more serene space that then is spacious. And then out of that, actually, we're going to be much more effective in being able to hold the polarities and the conflicts in the external world. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share with us some of the basic ground rules of mediation. One is just simple, basic human respect. <laughs> I mean, start from there. Uh, that's really what a mediator is doing is being respectful. And respect comes from the Latin which means to look again, to see another, to see the human being there. And the, and the most common behavioral way in which we show respect is actually to listen. And we're in a world right now which is all about talking, and everyone's talking, and they're talking past each other. Uh, and we have talk shows. We need listen shows. And that's really what a mediator does, is a mediator, if you observe them, they listen far more than they talk. You know, there's a saying that God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason, and that's to listen twice as much as we talk. And, uh, and listening is a fine art. It's not just hearing the words. It's hearing what's behind the words. It's not just hearing what's being said. It's hearing what's not being said. It's listening for the emotions, for the needs, the feelings. So, you know, a mediator needs to be a deep listener and um, someone who can get at what someone might really want, not what they say that they want. How do you build that level of trust between, um, you know, two different parties or more? Isn't someone there going to sort of distrust your own motives or your reason for being there? For sure. Now, trust is one of the great enigmas of human existence. And to me, it's one of the defining issues of our time. Right now, we see levels of trust, social trusts, trust in our institutions, trust in our governments, trust in, uh, in, in businesses, trust in churches, whatever. It's, it's all uh, those levels are, tend to be going down. And, and to me, one of the great challenges is how do we build social trust? How do we build trust in situations where trust has been lost? So it's, it's, uh, it is absolutely key the first job of a mediator is to win the trust of, of both sides. Hmm. I, 
I'm sure that everyone listening uh, to this podcast has some conflict in their lives. You know, perhaps it's a conflict in their own family. Um, maybe it's been going on for years. It might be a conflict with a client or a coworker. What's a piece of advice that you could offer um, right away to help alleviate some of that suffering? Well, for one thing, I would say first is, I mean, even is prepare. <laughs> Uh, we often kind of rush into these conversations without preparing. You know, we would never give a speech important or make an important presentation without preparing. And yet these conflicts are often very important to us and they're important stakes. Yet we don't prepare. We kind of rush into it. No, I would prepare. So preparation is time on the balcony. Even like uh, prepare with a friend, you know, so because sometimes a friend will give you some perspective. They can be your balcony, as it were. And... Uh, Prepare with a friend or a coach or someone and just really sort of think about what is it I really want in this situation? And then see if you can put yourself in the other side shoes and see if you can ask yourself, what do they want? What do they really want? And then think about, is there anything, any kind of creative idea where, where maybe they can get what they want and you can get what you want? You're listening to Cosmos Live, made possible by Cosmos Community, dedicated members who support Cosmos in numerous ways. Speaking with master mediator William Urey, his work has been widely featured in the media, including the New York Times, the Financial Times, CNN, and the BBC. He has a popular TED Talk, The Walk from No to Yes. Is our human capacity to get along or something we once possessed and have lost, or is it something we're figuring it out slowly as we evolve? Well, it's interesting. My doctorate's in anthropology, that's what my, which is kind of the study of human beings. And uh, I've asked myself that question, but uh, one thing I, I realized is, First of all, we are just even evolutionarily, and even we are one of the most cooperative species around. Uh, we're designed, we're crafted for cooperation. Uh, we we cooperate. That's how we survive. That's how we spread around the planet is through cooperation. So, so no one should underestimate our capacity for cooperation. We also fall into conflict, of course, and that's why. That's and and uh, so yes, we do have that is innate ability to cooperate. That's what language. What we're talking about right now, the ability to communicate, is a tool developed as a tool to allow us to cooperate, so that through cooperation we could be more successful in hunting and gathering and making our lives in this world. And that's the challenge for us right now, right now, at this particular moment in the human journey and human evolution. Um, and I think it was Einstein who caught it perhaps best, you know, at the end of World War II with the great tragedies of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the advent of the atomic bomb. He said, you know, a race has begun now between our technological genius to devise weapons like atomic bombs, our technological genius that could allow us to destroy for the first time all life on the planet and our social our moral our emotional our ethical genius to cooperate to learn to live with each other to deal with our differences and we're in that race right now and uh, that's why uh, and yes in in that in exercising that social moral 
um, cultural genius, uh, we can draw upon a rich human heritage of, uh, of this ability to cooperate, to communicate, to cooperate. Mm, wonderful. We need that message so much today, given the converging crises that we're facing with the environment, the economy, our political situation. One thing I would say, Rhonda, about all those crises is if you look at them all, they seem huge. They seem intractable. They seem impossible. I mean, the climate change and all of that. Um, at the same time, the way I look at it is, you know, if we could learn to uh, all of those conflicts, all, all of those issues are really made by human beings and they can be solved by human beings. In other words, if we could, if we could learn to cooperate, to collaborate, to communicate, uh, if we could learn to get to yes, then none of those problems is actually um, intractable. One of my great passions, actually, over the last uh, 10, 15 years uh, is in the Middle East, uh, which is often held up by people as the kind of the, the example of the impossible conflict. And I've worked at a political level, you know, as a mediator, a negotiation advisor, and politics and various conflicts in the Middle East, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the conflict now in terrible war in Syria and so on. But one of my great passions too is walking. <laughs> walking is my way of going to the balcony and uh, find that when you walk you know, side by side, moving in a common direction, you have a different conversation than when you're just face to face. So back in the early 2000s, uh, after the tragedy of 9-11 and the attacks there and the, and the Iraq war, I was, was wondering if there's any out of the box idea to just to get people walking in the Middle East. And the thing that, you know, that unites us, uh, we know, is the power of story. So I look back at the story of Abraham, uh, who is kind of like, that's the origin story of the, of the Middle East. Uh, all the, the great faiths trace their, their origins back to this journey that was taken by a human being whose name was, seems to have been Abraham uh, and his family, and uh, who heard a call, you know, a call to go find himself. That's what he heard and uh, to go find himself. And so I thought, well, why not, uh, why not, you know, like an Appalachian Trail, or for those who know, who know the famous Santiago de Compostela in Spain and France, why not a long distance walking trail where people could, could honor this, this memory that what Abraham actually stands for, as I look more into, is the idea that no matter what divides us, what unites us is far greater. That's what he stands for. And what he stands for and what he's remembered for is his spirit of hospitality towards perfect strangers. He had his tent open in all four directions. So people thought this is the craziest idea. <laughs> We're going to go walk in the Middle East and, and so on. But over the last 10 years, my colleagues and I in, in various parts of the Middle East in five different countries, uh, in places that you would never expect, like Palestine, for example, in the West Bank, have begun to knit together walking trails, a whole network of walking trails called the Abraham Path. And they're literally, they're over a thousand miles now of walking trails and the World Bank is supporting it and people go there. If you're interested, it's uh, abrahampath.org.org. And uh, I've been there many, many, many times. And it's a, it's a transgenerational project that brings, uh, brings jobs, brings respect, brings dignity. You stay in people's homes. 
And it brings hope is really what it does. It brings hope to in a place where you wouldn't expect uh, to find hope. And it, it builds bridges across cultures, across faiths. And so it's one of my great passions in life is to nurture the Abraham path. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I love this idea of openness, uh, especially to um, strangers. I think none of us are really strangers. And pilgrimage is such a beautiful metaphor for our journey to, um, to completeness. Well, you know, I'm reminded, Rhonda, you know, there was a dire time in the beginning of the American Republic, and uh, George Washington uh, was once said, let us raise a banner to which the wise and honest can repair. The issue, in other words, the outcome, is in the hands of God. So what we can do, we don't know what the future brings, but what we can do is raise a banner to which the wise and honest can repair. And I think that's, that's what maybe Cosmos is trying to do, too, is people ask me if I am I'm optimist or a pessimist. And sometimes I say, well, you know, I'd like to remember, I think it was Winston Churchill, you know, during the Blitz and who said, you know, I guess I'm an optimist because I don't see the point in being anything else. But, uh, <laughs> but actually in a deeper sense, I think I'm a possibilist, you know, it's like, I believe in human possibility. I really do. Uh, I don't know exactly. I don't have a crystal ball, but I believe in, 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 I've seen so many changes. I felt it and I felt what human possibility is when we can all come together and start to heal our wounds and, uh, and usher in a better future. Lovely. Yes, we, we do have this tremendous human capacity and you embody it. Thank you so much um, for your service and thank you for your kind words about Cosmos Journal. And thank you for being with us today on Cosmos Live. My pleasure, Rhonda. I wish everyone much success in getting to yes, both with ourselves and with everyone else around us.